The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Wow. Superman affecting our weather. It's intriguing, I'll say that. Mystery novels are intriguing. This is libel. Slander. The gossip business has heat stroke. My suntan, however, has never been healthier. On the other hand, the heat wave does have its upside. Chill, Jimmy. Cold shower ought to do it. What's the matter? Never see a pair of legs before? Come on, it's in the beach day. Let's keep at it. What do we got? Some half-baked theory. Half-baked's better than raw. Let's hear it. Chief, this is a temperature chart of greater metropolis taken over successive days. Each temperature rise correlates to some super effort by Superman. Coincidence. Maybe. But most physicists do think that his power is solar-induced. So lots of things are solar-powered. Why blame Superman? Nobody knows how strong his powers are or how much energy it takes to recharge him. Superman could be drawing the sun's rays down on Metropolis like a giant heat funnel and not even know it. Yeah, but he's been here for months. Now, why would Metropolis start heating up now? Well, it was summer and it was hot. Now it's, it's winter and it's still hot. Whose side are you on? Well, low as you have to admit, it could be possible. Clark, you joining the Sisters of Metropolis convent is more likely. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, February 2nd, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to our show today as once again our resident non-expert expert on climate change and other related issues joins us for a much needed continuing discussion about the realities of climate change and, it, and many of its related issues versus the politics of climate change. And that's our guest Dave Plum. Dave, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, and we're happy to have you. And before we get our conversation started today, we should remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Dave, welcome to the show. Um, you know, I was giving a dinner speech uh, a few months back, and I, I prefaced it by saying why I was involved in politics. Um, I got involved in politics when I received my very first paycheck, and I saw on it what was deducted. <laughs> yeah, and that I, could do it. And I was, of course, a, a teenager, and I had to look up what CPP and UI at the time meant and, and, and education taxes and things like that. And that got me involved because I saw uh, an inherent unfairness in a lot of the deductions. And I understand that the reason you got involved in researching climate change was very similar. Can you tell us about it? Well, it was exactly that. I didn't. I never used to care what anybody else thought about climate change. It was a personal opinion other people held, and it really didn't impinge on me in any way. Uh, and then uh, some of these people started taking significant sums of money out of my pocket to fight climate change. And at that point, I became very intensely and personally interested in it. So uh, ever since then, I've been doing uh, research on it to find out if these deductions, if you will, uh, tax grabs, theft, call it what you like, 
are really justified in terms of saving the planet. And I've, uh, for the last decade, I've been doing a lot of research on this, and I've come to the conclusion that there's no basis in it. There's no, we don't have a crisis in climate science. We have a crisis in pol- politics. Um, the whole climate change thing is essentially a political creation, and most of it was kicked off by the inconvenient truth. Um, and the most inconvenient thing about that uh, particular documentary is all the things it conveniently forgets to tell us. So I've done a lot of research uh, in, in, in the years uh, since, and I've filled in a lot of the blanks, and I've come to the conclusion that really the crisis isn't climate, the crisis is Politics. Isn't it um, telling that The Inconvenient Truth was hosted by not a scientist, but a politician? Well, yes, and I mean, a lot of these findings, most of what you see in the mainstream media these days is all reports by the uh, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and those people are not scientists. Those people are politicians. So all the information we're getting fed to us through all the primary sources um, is basically um, it's political. It's not scientific, and they try to um, put a give it a, a sheen of respectability by saying that 97% of scientists agree that climate change is real. Well, I would suggest that 100% of scientists should agree that climate change is real because climate change has been real on this planet for as long as the planet has been here. As a matter of fact, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, we have highly evolved life forms on this planet is because of climate change. Uh, if, uh, if we ever stopped climate change, life would perish in pretty short order. And that uh, that nearly happened back uh, a few hundred million years ago when we had a supercontinent called Pangaea here. Uh, Pangaea was more equatorially distributed than land masses tend to be on this planet, uh, at the time, global temperature was about 10 to 12 degrees centigrade higher than it is now. Uh, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere were about four times what they are now. And life was doing very, very well. But what happened was that with, with all this landmass distributed on the equator, uh, ocean currents stopped flowing. Today we have, we hear about the, the Gulf Stream and we hear about the um, Pacific Decadal Oscillation and El El Nino and La Nina, warm and cold currents in the Pacific Ocean and uh, the North Atlantic Conveyor and all these different ocean currents. Well, these ocean currents have a huge impact on on climate on Earth, uh, but they also keep the ocean stirred up. And it's it's really important to do that because the ocean doesn't stay stirred up. It goes anoxic. In other words, the oxygen disappears from the water and everything that lives in the water that's dependent on oxygen oxygen uh, dies and that uh, that accounted for one of the greatest mass extinctions we ever had back around the time of uh, Pangaea because Pangaea plunked itself right around the equator pretty much now it extended from pole to pole but it was in such a way that there was there were not separate continental masses for these ocean currents to circulate properly and the ocean went anoxic because Basically, the climate was too stable. It wasn't changing enough. And if that were to happen uh, today, if we could somehow stop climate change, uh, to do that, first and foremost, we would have to stop 
all the ocean currents to begin with. And if we stop all the ocean currents, then the ocean goes anoxic. When the ocean goes anoxic, life in the oceans dies, and basically the oceans become huge, stagnant ponds, and the only life they'll support is anaerobic life, which is life that can live without oxygen. And when that happens, everything on land goes as well. So only a complete idiot would would want to stop climate change, even if we could do it. So if there's a scientist out there who says climate change is not real, uh, that guy's not paying attention. It's interesting. You're bringing up memories of when I was studying uh, in biology. They mentioned the fact that um, it was theorized that a lot of life and its diversity came about because we have a, a very large moon, which gave rise to tidal pools. And tidal pools are under constant flux and, um, uh, you know, ebb and flow. And, and, and life evolved there because of constant change. Now, if you go to another planet without a moon and you had a body of water, it would just ha- it would not have any tidal pools. It would just have the same level all the time and there was less chance of a life there. When I was researching my manuscript I came across uh, articles that were saying exactly that sort of thing and uh, it has to do with uh, the diurnal rise and fall of of the tides um, where this water would get splashed up on the shore and it would get into small shallow pools Um, and then the, the tide would go down and these little pools would be left on the shore for 12 hours through a hot sunny day sort of thing and and the ultraviolet light would work on chemicals in these pools and things would recombine and you would get things like amino acids and that sort of thing forming and yes there's a lot of speculation out there that if we didn't have a moon this might be a lifeless planet the moon's an interesting thing there's a chapter in my book that i call boiling the ocean and uh boiling the ocean comes uh it, it depends on the time of history. This goes back to the American Civil War and the World Wars and one thing or another. So it depends um, how it's told. The most recent version, I think, was probably World War II, and it involved the British Admiralty putting out a call to the citizens to um, for suggestions on how to combat the U-boat threat. And one wag wrote in and said, boil the ocean. And the Admiralty got back to him and said, well, how do you propose we do this? And he said, hey, you asked for suggestions. I made a suggestion. It's up to you to work out the details. Uh, So we have this uh, boil the ocean saying these days that basically uh, is is a way of describing a mission impossible type of situation where it just can't be done. The interesting thing is when I was doing research, I looked at at, uh, tidal breaking and... uh, and, and it's the amount of force that the moon exerts against the earth to, to cause it to break. There's, there's drag caused by the moon's uh, gravity. And uh, right now, <clears throat> as it turns out, there's so much energy going into the oceans. And there's people have measured this and they've calculated it. And it's uh, 20 to the, 10 to the 20 some odd joules. It works out, <clears throat> if you do the math, that, uh, that there's enough tidal breaking from the moon that we could if we had the great lakes uniformly at a temperature of zero degrees centigrade there's enough tidal breaking for the from the moon that once every century we could raise if we could save it all up and apply it all at once we could raise the entire volume of the great lakes from zero degrees centigrade to boiling once a century Mm -hmm. it's that much energy that the moon puts into the into the earth's oceans and if you look at this over a period of millions of years i did some calculations there's a lot of things that factor into this there's there's the fact that the the oceans now 
are only 75% of what they were when the Earth was new because we lose 95,000 metric tons of hydrogen to space every year. It equates to something like, I'm going off the top of my head now, 230 or 430. Anyway, uh, Olympic-sized swimming pools of water every year. So we're, we're losing our oceans constantly to space. We're down to 75% of the water we had when the planet was new. And the other thing is that the moon now is twice as far from Earth as it was when Earth was new. So tidal breaking in the early days was much more significant than it is now, but there was a lot more water to heat back in those days. So it's hard to figure out what the factor is in turn over time, but somewhere between, we could have, uh, the moon has exerted enough energy on the Earth to boil the oceans something like between 800 and 3,000 times over, over the course of time. I don't know what effect that has on climate these days, just that there's energy going into the system yes. um, that that is not being accounted for in the climate And models. not just on the ocean, too. I think you, you have to recognize the fact that the moon is acting upon the earth. And while the, the tides of the oceans are easy for us to observe, um, there's actually a tidal um, movement or bulge in the earth itself. And I understand that, uh, again, off the top of my head, um, the the surface of the Earth oscillates about a foot, based on the uh, the tides, based on because of the moon. While uh, while a tide may may go up or down by several feet, depending on where you are in the world. There are moons of the uh, of the gas giants, uh, Jupiter, Uranus. Uh, the four of the bigger outer planets are gas giants, and they have pretty sizable moons around them. And they have found uh, evidence of liquid water on some of these moons and they believe that the liquid water exists simply because there is so much tidal force on these moons that are small planets in their own rights. The crust is constantly flexing and the flexing of the crust caused by gravity on these moons is sufficient to have liquid water on these moons. Now the surfaces are frozen over but underneath there's enough tidal forcing in the in the crusts of these moons just because of gravity as they orbit these gas giants that this is uh this puts uh, liquid water on these moons and uh there's some speculation that there may actually be uh, primitive life on these moons around these gas giants and it's all due to the influence of gravity and flexing of the of the crusts i guess the lesson is that there is more to climate and, and, and the forces that are surrounding us, which may contribute to climate change than simply idling your car at it. That's the very least of it. Now look, Lois, I understand how you feel. We all like Superman. But you've got to keep an open mind about this. I refuse to believe Superman is at fault. Well, look, it's just a theory. There are lots of theories. We're going to publish them all. You can't print something like this. <sighs> Tell him. It's like you said, Chief. I think the public has a right to know. Clark! Hey, line two! If it wasn't Superman, we wouldn't even think twice about it. Where? When? Good afternoon, Mr. Superman. Just Superman, Your Honor. That's your full name? That's what people call me. Fine. Make it one word. Superman, do you know why the city attorney dragged you in here? The theory is that my powers may be causing the city's peculiar heat wave. 
Well, what do you think? I don't think it's true, but if Metropolis is worried about me using my superpowers, I'd like to put the fears to rest. All right. I'm going to grant this injunction pending further scientific study. Superman, you are hereby ordered to cease and desist all super activity until further notified. Do you wish to contest? I'm just as anxious as anyone else to discover the source of this heat. No super activities of any kind. Flying, the visual thing, nada. Comprende? I'll do my best. All right, people, we got a deal. Well, that's one way to get a climate change deal made. Uh, Dave, you were saying in the first part of the show that uh, you got interested in the whole climate issue when it started affecting your pocketbook and you realized that you were paying for all this political science, not science science. And I'm just wondering if the, the real inconvenient truth here is that by the time we're at the point of paying politicians for climate change, it's a little bit late to do a lot about it because I'm looking at a phenomenon here. Look at here, I have a couple of file folders. These folders are full of editorials, articles written by scientists, economists, everyone who thinks that climate change is a bunch of crap. There is maybe a small handful, and they're always officials, who are on the other side of the scale. You know, we can talk science and uh, give the accuracy, but how that seems not to have any effect on politicians and the people who are taking the money out of our pockets. The politicians are doing this with the blessing of uh, basically an uninformed electorate, and it, I find it so distressing that that we've gone so far down this road we have everybody's complaining about hydro bills now and they say the hydro system is broken well there's nothing wrong with the with the electrical system it's working just fine uh it's cranking out above capacity we've got all these uh, solar farms and wind farms producing a lot more energy than we need we're selling the excess to uh, Michigan and New York um, at a loss. Very, I was going to say cheaply. we're giving it away. <laughs> yeah, pennies on the dollar, and that allows them to come to our industries. We got Ford. We've got um, uh, the Ford plant, Kellogg's, Caterpillar. You name it. There's a number of them that used to be in in the London area. They've gone stateside now because the states can say, "Look, come on over here and set up your." manufacturing plants where you can produce whatever it is you produce for for nearly free energy that the Canadians are giving us while the people of Ontario are giving them actually and meantime we've got all this excess power that we're selling very very cheaply so that the United States can can attract our industry away from us and take our jobs away meanwhile we're spending millions or billions I forget what the number is on buying electricity from Quebec and now on my way in here today I hear on the radio that they're going to spend something like another hundred million dollars to extend natural gas service into northern communities and this whole thing that they've been going on about for the last decade that's cost us like tens of billions of dollars in Ontario uh, and has taken our jobs away is making is driving a lot of people into energy poverty. The whole premise behind all that is to reduce the use of fossil fuel. So now they're going to extend natural gas into northern communities where it doesn't exist now because natural gas is so much cheaper uh, than the uh, alternatives, which is basically oil and electricity that they're using now. And and I'm looking at this and saying, well, that's completely contrary to why you did all this stuff well, in even, the first place that made electricity 
so bloody expensive to begin with. So, I mean, where are we going on this? And and where we're going on this is that we have a generally uneducated electorate, the electorate who don't understand the relationship between this war on climate and hydro costs. And it's it's a direct relationship. The, the hydro costs we, we have today are a direct uh, result of this hugely expensive and totally ineffective war on climate. And it's... um. We don't teach this stuff in our schools. Our young people are Well, maybe being... that's a secret. It, maybe my question was, I, I referred to, you know, columnists and people in newspapers. I don't think they're teaching those columnists in the schools. And, and what's happening is in the schools are getting a very different curriculum from what's being told in the newspapers that are reporting the actual consequences of these beliefs. You think that's where the problem is, that it starts almost like brainwashing in the schools? I noticed you were t- taking a look at some of the slant that Ontario High School curriculum imposed on the subject of climate change. Yeah, here, here's a situation, okay, and I'll start with a little anecdote. There's a, mm-hmm. um, a guy that uh, runs an inn, and he's got a, a tavern, um, he serves food, and he's um, from the rural countryside, and he's, he's locally famous for his rabbit stew. But he's having trouble making ends meet. Hydro costs are driving his profit totally away, and he has to do something to try to keep his business profitable enough to stay in business. So he starts to cut his rabbit stew with horse meat because pound for pound, horse meat is a heck of a lot cheaper than rabbit meat. So some of his customers catch wind of this, and they take him to court, and he's he's in court, and he's testifying. He's under oath, and he's a basically honest guy just trying to do something to make ends meet, cut some corners, but he's not going to perjure himself lying under oath. So the judge asks him, he says, do you in fact put horse meat in your rabbit stew? And he uh, admits that he's embarrassed and he says, yes, your worship, in fact, I do put horse meat in my rabbit stew. Well, his worship isn't happy with that answer. His worship presses on and he says, how much? Uh, At this point, the, uh, uh, this tavern owner is getting a little bit embarrassed and he says well actually your worship it's 50 50 his worship is 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 a wise and learned man and he realizes we've talked about this i think before what i call percentage perfidy where you talk in percentages which disguises the underlying thing you've got two bags of money and you can have a hundred percent of this bag or ten percent of that bag and you guys the first question you asked was how much money is in the bags well nobody asks that about atmospheric CO2. But his worship realizes that 50-50 is, is another way of stating a percentage. Uh, and he's not fooled by this like the way most people are. So he presses on and, and he asks this guy, he says, okay, tell me exactly what you mean in, in terms of real amounts of 50-50. Well, at this point, this tavern keeper is really flustered. And he says, 50-50, one rabbit, one horse. <laughs> and and this is what we're getting in the educational system. I did this uh, I went into the uh, secondary school curriculum, and it's online. It's all PDF documents, and you can search out certain word strings. And I looked for word strings like climate change, and I found in uh, three different courses uh, something like 100 and, what was it, 111 different references to climate change, 42, 42 references to uh, greenhouse gas, and one reference to Milankovitch cycles. Now, in terms of what really drives climate on Earth? Greenhouse gas is the rabbit, metaphorically, and Milankovitch cycles are the horse. So we hear about the rabbit 
in in one case 111 111 times and in another case with the greenhouse gases we hear about the rabbit 42 times we hear about the horse once and my question is why is that i mean if you are going to talk to me about greenhouse gas you should be able to talk to me equally knowledgeably about Milankovitch cycles because Milankovitch cycles are the thing that really drives climate on this planet. And we're not teaching our students this at all. And my point is that we... Well, we don't teach our students. The no, government that, does. That's, that's the, problem. the point I was just going to make. <laughs> we do not educate people. We you, Call it what you want. You know, <clears throat> um, when my dad was my driving instructor when I, he was 16... He told me something that stuck with me my whole life and uh, has kind of saved me on occasion when I've heeded his advice. He said, son, some rights are worth dying for. The right of way is not one of them. And similarly, with this educational system, you can call it what you want. It's, uh, you can call it education, but it's not education. It's, it's indoctrination. It, it's, it's brainwashing. It's, it's something else, but it's not education. It's, it's basically mental programming. And, the and danger, that's, that's a problem. The danger you're causing here, Dave, of course, is if, you, if there's a politician listening and he realizes that the Milankovitch cycles are really what's causing climate change, he'll find a way to tax us for it. <laughs> and, on our, and on your hydro bill, you're going to find a Milankovitch price, just like we got the carbon price now. You know, Robert, I think you've hit uh, hit a nail on the head there because that's really what it's all about. The whole climate change story is just a story for people to uh, feel that they are contributing in some way positively so that they will accept the sacrifices that the government is imposing on them that are really for nothing. Exactly. And, you know, I, I, I used to say that climate changes and politicians don't. <laughs> but now I've come to believe that it's more accurate to say climate changes and politicians won't. Because with politicians, unlike with the weather, the refusal to change is an act of will or willful blindness, like you used to, like you were saying last week, Robert. But to actually go out of the way to put into curriculum just totally a misbalanced view of what the science is on something. I was able to deduce the actual science of climate change and everything, I recall, just from reading an old Life magazine article that was printed like 30, 40 years ago when we still had journalism. And they would talk about all these things, and all these things would be in there. And all of that popular knowledge has been suppressed. And I think it had to be suppressed, you know, uh, actively with some intent. And I, I don't know how we're going to fight that because facts don't seem to matter. You know, that's a popular thing being said in politics these days. Well, it's days. funny when you talk about old articles and facts. I was reading an article just recently, and it was uh, published by a reputable science scientist. I can't remember who it was, but he was uh, writing about climate change, about how the Arctic's warming up, the, the sea lanes are all opening up, the ice is disappearing, the polar bears are at risk, and all that sort of thing. Um, and, and it was a fairly alarming article. It's published in 1922. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and since then, a lot of the ice came back, and now it's going away again. These are cyclical changes that happen all the time uh, over short periods of time. And when we're talking decades, I mean, to talk decades, the comparison I think we made previously is that in comparison with Earth's life, 150 years on which all these models and all the temperature readings are based, 150 
150 years relative to the life of the Earth is 47 seconds relative to a human lifespan of 90 years. And who plans his life in 47 second intervals? But that's what we're doing in terms of looking at 150 years of weather data and saying that applies to anything significant on planet Earth. It just doesn't. You know, a problem that I have with the education system, and there are many, is that they gloss over a lot of things which are very complex and require years of study to fully grasp, if they're fully graspable at all. And climate change is a higher order concept, which is not, I think, even an appropriate subject to be talking about in elementary schools, which we do talk about in elementary schools. It is, it's like talking about pollution, which is a higher order political concept, not just a scientific one. And in the glossing over, I think there's, it's doing a disservice. It is implanting in the minds of our children false concepts, which then require um, a very long process of deprogramming to get out of so that they can understand the complexity of what we're talking about here in climate change. It, it's such a massive topic. We've had several experts on this show talking about tens upon tens of different factors which affect the climate around us, when what we really should be talking about, I guess, is how politicians take this complex topic, boil it down into a couple of pat phrases, instill those phrases into the mind of the public, and then tax them and get their votes. And that's what it boils down to. It's 110 degrees and thousands are fleeing Metropolis for cooler weather. In the news, Superman has again violated the injunction, using his superpowers to save 325 commuters on a runaway train. Lois, I think I got something. I charted all the super activity, just like you said. Then I compared it to the heat distribution map for the same time period. The dates match the temperature rises, but get a load of this. The really hot spots aren't anywhere near the super activity. I knew it. But nobody's going to give up one theory until we can prove another. Well, if I start now, I can have a mail-order physics degree in, say, six years. I got a better idea. Call Dr. Goodman, the physicist from the press conference. She didn't believe Superman was guilty either. Maybe she can tell us something about these maps. Lois, I need you to get down to the courthouse right away. I thought all I was good for was puff pieces. Now, look, I'm trying to run a newsroom here with everybody missing in action. Even Kent called in with heat exhaustion. So it's you or nobody. Superman's about ready to turn himself in. I'm on it. I said I came to help. That's still how I feel. But I'll have to find another place and another way. I have voluntarily agreed to leave Metropolis by noon tomorrow. I believe it's the best way to put all of your fears to rest. I will miss everyone. Thank you. You can't leave. I have no choice. But they can't be right. 
Well, if they can't be right, then hopefully we can. After all, you are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. We encourage you to visit www.justrightmedia.org to check out our incredible archive of timeless previous broadcasts, including a few others featuring our in-studio guest today, David Plum. From Just Right's homepage, you can access every other related online archive, from YouTube videos to social media links, including one link you may notice because of its contrasting yellow cover, situated very strategically near our other links with the word donate written on it. Remember, your financial donations to this very unique effort in broadcasting and podcasting will enable us to reach ever-increasing audiences and to share our programming with the world. Just to, to, to go on a little bit about what I, I left off with before the break, about the political machinations where they take science and popularize it in an effort to get taxes and votes. The uh, ozone layer, I found, was a, a, one of those examples. Because when I hear about, oh, there's a hole in the ozone layer and it's growing, and you're going to get cancer as a result. Boom, there's the distillation right there. But the actual truth behind the entire science of the ozone layer is so complex that that kind of simplification is doing a disservice to all of the information that is out there in the work of the scientists. Um, did you want us to talk about that, Dave? I know you're, you're knowledgeable about the ozone well, layer. Well, uh, uh, yes, the, the ozone... <clears throat> This idea about a hole in the ozone layer is a total fiction. There's never been a hole in the ozone layer. <clears throat> the ozone layer varies in, uh, in in depth from, I think, a few kilometers up to 15 now, kilometers. Now, 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 you realize that I cannot get my air conditioner fixed on my car because of the ozone layer. That's what I keep getting told by car mechanics. It has to be done a certain way, and you have to have the whole thing replaced, and they well, won't, they won't <clears throat> refill it. Anything, anything with chlorine or, or bromine in it will denature ozone. Uh, and the ozone layer is a very important protective layer. Uh, the ozone layer is what shields out so much ultraviolet uh, and extreme ultraviolet radiation. Without the ozone layer, basically, we would be irradiated to death in fairly short order. And there's... Um, so is there a relationship between what we're putting in our air conditioners and, and yes. the ozone layer? There is. Yes. Yes, there is. And there's also, um, there's other things that can affect the ozone. If a supernova were to go off within 6,500 light years of here, the cosmic ray burst from that uh, supernova could basically destroy half the ozone layer in something like 10 seconds. Uh, and there's speculation that some of the mass extinctions that have happened in the past have been as a result of sudden destruction of, of the ozone layer, and it would take several years for that to replenish. Uh, and we developed this Montreal protocol years ago that said we should get all these CFCs, and uh, which are chlorofluorocarbons, but it, it's chlorine and bromine and those types of chemicals uh, out of the atmosphere. Um, and I have no problem with that Montreal Protocol, but here's the difference between the Montreal Protocol and what we're talking about in terms of fighting climate change today. Today's effort on fighting climate change, reducing the use of fossil fuels and so on, is entirely aimed at greenhouse gas, which is principally carbon dioxide. Now, some of it's methane, but methane, when it gets into the atmosphere, does not persist long, and with sunlight and various other interactions, it gets turned into carbon dioxide in fairly short order. So we're talking about carbon dioxide uh, in, in today's discussion about climate change and carbon taxes and all that sort of thing. The difference is 
Carbon dioxide is a naturally occurring trace gas that is absolutely essential for life on Earth, and we are at a historically low level of atmospheric carbon dioxide. If anything, we need more of it, not less. It's a naturally occurring, naturally occurring, let's emphasize that, trace gas. It belongs in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. CFCs and some of these other, we've developed since the Second World War something on the order of 750,000 chemicals, most of which we have no idea what they do to the atmosphere. But things with chlorine and bromine and, and all these synthetic chemicals that we have developed for air conditioning and for propellants in uh, spray cans and stuff like that, these are man-made chemicals that do not occur naturally. They are, they are unnatural natural contributors to the atmosphere. These are the things that are truly pollution. And when somebody talks about carbon dioxide and calls it pollution, I know I'm talking to a completely uninformed idiot at that point because carbon dioxide is not pollution. Carbon dioxide is plant food. CFCs and some of these other things that you're talking about in air conditioning systems, these are pollutants. They do not belong in the atmosphere. So the Montreal Protocol was developed to basically reduce and eliminate these kinds of things from the atmosphere. We should be doing a hell of a lot more of that kind of thing than we are doing because we've got our heads up, our butts over. I mean, well, why would we need about to this do... anthropogenic, you know, uh, uh, greenhouse gas stuff? And it's distracting us from the really important things like all the harmful stuff that we should be addressing. We're not because we're focused on the wrong thing. My point, I guess, in bringing up the ozone hole is the terminology that politicians use to get into your pocket and put your hand in the ballot box. And the, while the ozone layer and the, its density at varying uh, latitudes was an issue that was addressed properly, I think, as well, another one was acid rain. Those two words alone, acid rain, again, condensed a very serious uh, problem with sulfur in the atmosphere changing the pH of lakes and rivers and things like that, which affected forests and <laughs> and and then with them we then put scrubbers on smokestacks because of it. Now I don't know too much about whether or not that had an effect, positively or negatively. But you see my point. They saw politicians saw the people react with horror and with uh, with protestation when we talked about an ozone hole. They, they acted the same way when we talked about acid rain. Now, what I think they've done is they've come up with this artificial contrivance called global warming or climate change, those buzzwords out there. And they've associated a negative impact on life on the planet with them erroneously, unlike perhaps with the ozone hole or acid rain. They've, they've found a method to get into your pocket and to change your behavior. Even acid rain is just part of the natural negative feedback system. Uh, and, and in climate, there, there are numerous, I don't know if we could even count the number of feedback systems there are that keep the system in balance. Acid rain is one of them. What happens is when you get a lot of um, carbon dioxide build up in the atmosphere and, and it rains, it turns into what's called carbolic acid. It's a very weak acid. It falls on 
the land and it erodes rocks and it takes calcium out of the rocks and this all gets converted as it washes into the streams and rivers and oceans it gets converted into calcium carbonate which is better known as as uh, chalk when it gets compacted or limestone when it gets compacted further or limestone when it gets down deep into the earth and and gets some heat and pressure applied to it becomes marble but it's all calcium all starts out as calcium carbonate and 99.945 percent of the carbon on earth is basically on the bottom of the oceans and it got there through processes like acid rain leaching the calcium out of rocks uh, uh, marine organisms incorporated into their their bodies and then they die and fall to the bottom of the ocean and so on so this is all part of the the carbon cycle on earth and there's there's nothing unnatural about it when you bring up sulfur and this is very poorly understood Aerosol sulfates, which are basically little chemicals, sulfur chemicals in the air. Aerosol sulfates block ultraviolet light. They block the sun's heat from getting to the earth. And people talk about volcanoes going off and causing huge amounts of greenhouse gas to go into the air. Well, it depends where the volcano is. If the volcano is down, like deep in the ocean, or in some other place that has been underwater at some time in the past, there's a lot of organic material in in all this uh, marine sediments that have been deposited over the years, all this uh, uh, calcium carbonate. If If the volcano erupts up through that, then it does put huge amounts of greenhouse gas into the air. But the other thing volcanoes typically put into the air, and continental volcanoes in particular, put a lot of uh, sulfur into the air. They put a lot of aerosol sulfates into the air. And what you typically find after a major volcanic eruption is you'll have several months or a few years of, of, of cooling because all these aerosol sulfates are shielding us from, from the sun's effects. So volcanic activity can actually initially cool the planet more than more than it warms it. And the funny thing is that in recent years, the last 10 or 15 years, we've had this huge push on removing sulfur from, from diesel fuel and, and other fuels. We've got clean diesel now that has been mandated for the last decade or so. And the difference between clean diesel and dirty diesel is the clean diesel is a much more highly refined product, which is why diesel prices are now higher than gasoline prices. But back in the old days when diesel was cheap, it's because it was full of sulfur. So you had you had all these trucks. You had uh, you had aircraft. You had big you ships. You could always you, smell oh, that God, sulfur kind of, too you know, when, yeah, when the engines were trains, running. Trains, like yeah. every every big thing that ran on diesel, was putting a huge amount of aerosol sulfates into the air, and it was actually offsetting the effect of the the greenhouse effect because the sulfates were a negative feedback mechanism against the greenhouse gas that was going in the air and since we've cleaned up our diesel fuel and are still burning fossil fuels if there's any warming that we attribute to our use of fossil fuel maybe the actual warming is attributable to the fact that we have taken out the cooling sulfur that that they used to put aerosol sulfates (laughs) into the air and, and and helped offset that greenhouse effect which it's a complex system we we don't understand it all that well well, that's why I get scared when people start thinking they can control the environment in some meaningful way. Robert, you said that uh, when we were having the pollution issue, people would complain about the ozone hole, and I'm not sure that it was the people as such more than environmentalists who who are still pushing their issues today. Well, that's what I said, too. I didn't yeah. say the people as such. The people were the ones who were afraid because yeah. the environmentalists were saying that they're going to die of cancer. So what did they right. do? They passed law. You don't have to do this. 
What choice do I have? I don't get it, Clark. I just don't get it. You used your powers in Smallville, and it never got hot. That was just everyday stuff, Dad. Since I've been in Metropolis, I've been doing some pretty big things. But do you believe it? Do you honestly think you're causing this heat wave? I don't know, Mom. Everybody else seems to think so. Well, who cares what everyone else thinks? This was your dream, Clark. A good job, a real life for yourself here in Metropolis. Why should you lose that? It's only Superman who has to leave. I can't just turn it off, Dad. I can't look past people who are hurting, people in trouble, knowing that I could help them and having to stop myself. I just, I can't do that. But you're such a special person, Clark. It's not fair you're being punished for it. Mom, please. I've made up my mind. All right, then. We'll take you home, son. No. I can't go back to Smallville. Well, I know it's not the big city, but it's home. Uh, it's not that, Mom. What if I am a solar conductor? I can't take the chance of hurting you and Dad. Well, then where are you going to go? I don't know yet. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Here live from downtown Metropolis is Murray Mindlin. Superman has taken a super hike. And not soon enough as far as this report is concerned. Not only is he responsible for baking Metropolis, but rumor has it his force field is the real reason the Metropolitans lost the pennant this year. This among everything Maybe. else. This is important. Uh, hey, we're keep, live here. Keep rolling. Superman, if you can hear this, come back. We figured it out. You're not causing the heat and you never were, but there's an emergency and we need you now. Meet me at LexCorp nuclear plant and I'll explain everything. And Superman, hurry. This is Murray Minlan, and you heard it here first. There's an emergency at LexCorp nuclear plant. A meltdown in progress. Superman, where are you when we need you? Oh, come on. Oh, Bob, back to you. Well, have fun with that crowd, Murray. <laughs> Hypocrite that he was about Superman. I'll give Murray credit for this. At least he changed his mind once confronted with some alternate evidence. And by the way, I don't know if you saw that Lois and Clark episode from which we took our audio bites today, but interestingly in the plot resolution it turns out that the heat wave was actually caused by none other than the local electricity monopoly, which was run by none other than Lex Luthor. Wouldn't you know it? Uh-huh. <laughs> of course. Are you sure it wasn't run by Donald Trump? Because or, he seems to be the taking the blame yeah. for just about everything happening today. Just going into that, our, our last break there, we were just getting into what might be the real pollution problems still remaining on the on the earth and I know that's a very general issue because I think this CO2 thing is, is a distraction from the fact that there aren't any concrete tight pollution issues for a lot of environment environmentalists to grasp onto and uh, you were mentioning that you think the, the population issue is an issue earth population I'm not sure what the carrying capacity of human population would be on this planet but I'm pretty sure it's considerably less than seven seven billion people uh, well, that would be for for if you're talking about a primitive tribal existence or or socialism, because we've we've heard this argument over the years, and you know people say you can't have so many million people living in a certain density. We're making do because our technology is getting us through so far. But the problem with technology is that it needs fossil fuel 
to keep running effectively. And we've talked about this before, uh, relative energy density of, of electricity uh, storage systems being batteries, uh, essentially a rechargeable battery. The best rechargeable batteries these days are have an energy density that's about 4% that of gasoline. And the comparison we used is that to fly a 747 transcontinental or overseas, the equivalent of full tanks of, of jet fuel in a 747, uh, if you did that with batteries, the batteries alone would weigh 50 times as much as the aircraft. And people that are on about converting society to all electric somehow think that thing would still fly. I disagree. I, don't, I think it's like an elephant stomping on a pop can, but uh, it's not going to get off the ground. Uh, so there are certain applications, uh, heavy-duty transportation being one of them, uh, agriculture being another, uh, and anything that moves and has to move uh, any distance or any amount of mass is going to continue to need fossil fuel. And we're using up the fossil fuel a lot faster than it can be regenerated. Now, perhaps, perhaps we can address that through technology, too. Um, there's a lot of experimentation being done, and they've got uh, test plants uh, like sample. Um, what would you call it, prototype plant setup uh, that produce a product called algae oil. Uh, these things need three things to run. They need, uh, they need the algae, uh, they need carbon dioxide, and they need water and sunlight. Uh, and you put the algae in the water and you provide carbon dioxide and sunlight, and basically we can do uh, in, in days what it takes nature millions of years to do in terms of producing uh, algae oil. So maybe some of these challenges we can overcome uh, in the future with technology, but right now I look at 7 billion plus people on this planet and climbing, and I look at the reports of places like this island nation of Kiribati, which is in the South Pacific, um, and it's near a subduction zone, and because the Pacific plate is being subducted under the adjacent Indo-Australian, Philippine, and Eurasian plates, places like Kiribati and Japan are going down because the, the, the bedrock on which they sit is going is being subducted under mm -hmm. the ad adjacent continental uh, plates. Uh, so you get all these reports about sea level rise, and it's all about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere when it, when it really isn't. But a lot of the problem with Kiribati, too, is it's going undergoing a process called volcanic subsidence. And when a volcano is in its growth stage, it gets bigger and bigger. It spews out a lot of material, and it builds uh, land mass. But once it's done, it's got this central core that's basically empty space. It, eventually, it starts to collapse back into itself. But it also, it's, it's a hugely massive structure, and, and it depresses the Earth's crust. I think the, the biggest uh, mountain on Earth, I believe, is Mauna Kea, uh, part of the Hawaiian island change. And it depresses the Earth's crust something like eight kilometers. Like, that's five miles that it shoves the Earth's crust down under just by its own mass. So this is what happens with volcanic subsidence. And even after a volcano is extinct, the mass remains. And it continues to exert that downward pressure on the Earth's crust. So these things start to, to sink in, into the crust. And if you're standing on the shore of these things and you're seeing the, the water, Rising, it's easy to think, well, 
something's melting somewhere and adding water to the oceans, and that's not what's happening. What's happening is the land underneath you is sinking. And this is a process called volcanic subsidence. Now, volcanic subsidence in um, South Sea uh, areas where it's it's warm and and life can grow uh, quickly and abundantly, it's made up for with formation of coral reefs, where coral reefs grow around these things, and the coral can grow at or at a rate that's equal to or greater than the amount of volcanic subsidence. So over the years, the the coral builds up and up and up, and plants grow on top of the coral. So you get all these coral islands and atolls um, that people live on. And in Kiribati, uh, it's 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 hugely overpopulated. There's there's nothing to do there, I guess, except to procreate and and uh, well, and apply for foreign aid. Well, now that's that's an interest. You're talking about the population. Uh, <laughs> there you go. When you look at overpopulated, quote-unquote, overpopulated countries, they tend to be the poorer countries, the non-capitalist countries. The capitalist countries have declining birth rates. Yeah. And it fall, And so, to me, the cure for overpopulation is capitalism because we know this from experience and that when people, a large part of survival in the, in the tougher parts of the world and in primitive societies was having a large brood of children because your children are your pension plan yes that's your not only your pension plan the they future, plow the fields they plow the fields the future of your planet and, and and i know even going back just a couple generations in my mom's family you know people had eight ten kids and out of those eight or ten you're lucky if four or five survive yeah right so now we're at a situation where we have more of this control so i don't see the quote-unquote overpopulation problem being one of how would I put it, environment as such or, or climate as such. I see that as economics, and I think that, that should capitalism reign, we would, we would see declining populations. It's just that we're not seeing that. And as long as people are getting all, like you said, even in the islands you're talking about, they're all, what, on welfare or something? Foreign <laughs> aid. Yeah, foreign aid, even worse. So you're subsidizing something that shouldn't be there. It's almost unnatural. Yeah. And so in terms of humanity, it's unnatural. So that's where you get these clusters of quote-unquote something you could call overpopulation. But that's my take on it. It's uh, more on the humanity side than it is on the scientific side, wouldn't you say, Robert? Well, I agree with you, Bob. I don't see a problem with population at all. It's a matter of, like you say, economics. Though there's something to be said for what is the carrying capacity of the earth, and you're saying that it's less than 7 billion. The thing is, though, we do have 7 billion, and we're carrying them quite well. So, obviously, the carrying capacity of the Earth is at least 7 billion. In a billion. natural state, I think, is more the Well, issue, that's the right? thing is that you can't put the genie back in the bottle. We're a technological species. We know how to do things. And if we have a problem with rising tides or volcanic subduction or plate tectonics or global warming, whatever, we adapt via technology or whatever. Now, at, during the break, I think, Dave, you are telling us, uh, well, if we rely so much on the technology technology all we have you know is our reliance on a technology which could be wiped out by a coronal mass ejection overnight true but i don't think that's a a way to live your life i think that we have to continue doing what we're doing 
It's not a reason not to have babies, there, that just a, because we might have a coronal mass ejection in the future. There, there's a similar truth in that old saying, I, I'm just paraphrasing here. What did they say? That if the economy just stopped now and we stopped producing, we'd have, what, three, three days of survival before everybody <laughs> would panic, especially in the large cities. So what's very important is that the economy keeps running, that the flow of production and goods and services keeps but, going. But there's people stacked, you know, floor upon floor and uh, above each other in, in huge cities would be in real trouble. I don't, th- I don't think that the soiling green future that's painted by some people is going to happen. I think the market will will prevail. I think people are intelligent. They will survive well, and they will, will prosper. Yeah. We're just doing the wrong thing with climate change, though. We should acknowledge the reality of it, and rather than try to fight it and stop it, we should be devoting our time and our resources to trying to figure out how to adapt to it. Oh, agreed. You know, and, and, and we're just going about it the, the completely wrong way. A coronal mass ejection is one possibility. A cosmic ray burst is another possibility. Any number of things can happen. Uh, what will be inevitable, and probably not in our lifetimes, getting back to the Milankovitch cycles, what Milankovitch found was that, uh, and he looked at uh, ice core samples uh, back uh, over 800,000 years, and, and these samples are used pretty much universally by everybody that's studying climate, and there's no disagreement among the scientists as to the validity of this of this data they've they've they're all pretty much in agreement about what temperature and carbon dioxide levels have done over the last uh, 800 to a million years and what Milankovitch found was that there's a major cycle a 400,000 year cycle and then there's other more minor cycles that are 100,000 year cycles well Earth's uh, obliquity, uh, which is the degree that the orbit is stretched out, uh, runs on a 100,000-year cycle from from minimum to maximum and back again. And Milankovitch found that when we are at minimum obliquity, obliquity, when we're when the Earth is at minimum degree of axial tilt. Um, and when continents are mostly polar distributed, uh, <clears throat> every time that's happened over the last uh, million years, we've had significant northern hemisphere glaciation. Uh, right now, if you look at where we are in that cycle, we're just coming down the hill towards a low point in that cycle. And every other time in the last 800 to a million years this happened, what followed was massive northern hemisphere glaciation. Right now, the Earth is tending towards minimum obliquity. It'll be there in about 25,000 years. It's tending towards minimum, or minimum <laughs> eccentricity, rather. Uh, it's tending towards uh, minimum obliquity, which is axial tilt, and it'll be there in about 11,400 years. And uh, continental masses are basically polar distributed. So we have this perfect storm of continental northern hemisphere continental glaciation coming at us and we're worried about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere none of which has had any effect on stopping the glaciation before and instead of looking at all this other stuff we should be studying Milankovitch cycles we should be understanding what they portend and we should be trying to figure out what the heck we're going to do how we're going to live under two or three miles of ice here in Canada because that's what's coming. You know, I was on a talk show. And yet your book is called Climate Hope. Yeah. (laughs) I was on a talk show a couple months ago, 
and they were the hosts of the show, another talk show, not my own, <laughs> and the hosts of the show were concerned about, you know, politicians getting on with fighting climate change. And I, I said, well, why would you want to? And their response was, well, because the majority thinks that we have to do this, the majority of scientists. And that's pretty, pretty much as far as the whole debate goes. And that's how people are deciding. They think that there's some magic majority, that majorities always are wiser, which there isn't a lot of evidence for. We talked about that in a previous episode, <laughs> yeah. too, with the trouble with experts, right? That's right. <laughs> so there you go. Well, thanks for joining us on another round of discussions on climate and climate change, Dave. And uh, this being Groundhog Day, I imagine we can look forward to many more years of climate change politics from now on. (laughs) But we'll keep up the good word in terms of trying to get the science out there and the real knowledge. And we will continue doing that on so many topics. Join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Well, I, I think Superman probably has a very good sense of humor <laughs> I never heard him say anything really funny But it's common sense He's got super strength, super speed I'm sure he's got super humor <laughs> I think that, but you... Either you're born with a sense of humor or you're not. It's not going to change. Even if you go from the red sun of Krypton all the way to the yellow sun of the Earth. Why? Why would that one area of his mind not be affected by the yellow sun of the Earth? I don't know, but he ain't funny.